So yeah, remembering is so important to, well, this life. I think remembering who God is and who isn't God is so important. And uh, as many of you know, that uh, the last couple months have been quite traumatic for my family and myself. And those definitely not the lights that you should be turning off. Um, but this week especially, it was quite traumatic. And uh, I don't know if everybody knows, but uh, on Tuesday, I got a phone call from my wife, Erin, saying that my oldest daughter, Jael, had a penny stuck in her throat. She was coughing, she was crying, so she wasn't gasping for air, but you can only imagine what it feels like to have a penny stuck in your throat, and all the things are going through our minds and everything else, and the people on the phone were telling uh, Aaron that I needed to drive her to Bath. So um, right around noon time, we got in the car, and and you can imagine what a seven-year-old kid is like. You know, she's coughing and gagging and crying, and I'm thinking, 40-minute drive. This is, this is going to be a, a traumatic experience. And there were a couple of miracles that took place that day. And one of them, first off, is that, um, th- let's say there's, there could be multiple kinds of voices going into your mind and your heart at this time. The, the voice of fear, all the things that could happen and you don't want to happen. And I think a voice of faith, God actually saying, I'm with you. I'm for you. I'm in control. And in that moment, it's the question is, which voice am I going to listen to? Which voice do I know? Which, is it going to be the static of fear, or is it going to be the voice of faith and, uh, and of God? And miraculously at that moment, I got in the car, and, and a lot of lessons I've learned lately, I said, well, if I'm knowing him, I'm absolutely in complete, no control in this situation, and I need to be there for my, my daughter. I said, turned around, I said, honey, we're going we're gonna to pray and we're going to give thanks. You remember the, the lessons we've been learning? You have to give thanks in every circumstance, in every situation? Yeah, Dad. Well, we're going to stop and give thanks. We're going to give thanks that God is God and we're not. We're going to give thanks that he is, loves us, that he's with us right now, and that he's in absolute control of everything. So I prayed that for us. And immediately afterwards, Jay started to calm down. The coughing was less. The crying was less. And the closer and closer we got to the hospital, she was her regular self. Running, she, by the time we got to the waiting room, A&E, she's running around, dancing, playing, singing, wanting to read books. All the meanwhile, she's got a penny stuck in her throat just above her collarbone. And you think, you know, imagine how, you know how uncomfortable it is when you get a crisp stuck in your throat? And all you want to do is like, you know, drink a water, get something to get it out, you know? And here's my daughter. She can't drink anything. Nothing's going to make this feeling go away. And she isn't feeling anxious. She isn't feeling scared. She's absolutely calm and completely herself. And so, not only is this an interesting story, there's actually, there's something to do with what we're actually going to be looking at today. So, what is it that uh, causes us to just be absolutely fearful in some very difficult circumstances? Well, I think it's because that we're all creatures of fear. We all think that we're God. We all think that we should be able to control every situation. And then in the midst of that situation, we realize that we're absolutely helpless. And so there's this, there's this anxiety and fear that can take place that we think we're in control, but we also know that we're not in control. We also, we think that we have, we're God, but we actually really know deep down that we're not. And we're constantly trying to protect ourselves from those feelings. So you think about difficult circumstances that we all face. You know, thinking about 
parenting or marriage or singleness or jobs or security, where you're going to live. There's so many places where you're absolutely and completely helpless that fear can take over. You know, you think of um, your kid grows up and, and he's about ready or she's about ready to leave the house. You have absolutely no control how your kid's going to respond and make decisions in their life later on. No matter how great of a parent you were, no matter how present you were, no matter all the things that you've guided them, your, their response to your parenting, you're absolutely, you have no control over. Or what if, let's say your marriage falls apart and your spouse leaving you. It, you have no control over that person. Now you could try to control them with meanness and manipulation and all kinds of things. Or you can lean into God and say, God, I'm absolutely helpless in this situation. Could you win their heart? Because I can't change them. The only person that can change them is you. Can you win their heart? So we can, we're constantly in a place of, of, of wanting to, in a, in a state of fear, control situations that we have absolutely no control over. Now, all this is connected to really the idea of this is the kind of the Christian life. This is what we face. Are we going to listen to the voice of fear? Are we going to listen to all the static and all the noise that tells us we can control things? Or are we going to listen to the voice that says, I'm with you, I love you, and I got this? And that's, I think that's exactly what we're going to look at in Luke chapter 8 today. So if you want to open up a, your Bible to Luke chapter 8, or if the black Bible there, it's on page 865. And we've been in a, a, a series called Walking with Jesus and looking, with, with, uh, looking in the Gospel of Luke. And Luke is, you know, the Gospel of Luke is it's just, uh, well, it's a biography of Jesus' ministry. So Luke was a disciple or a follower of this guy named Paul. And Luke is telling a story, he's telling the story of Jesus' ministry, of his life, uh, of his death and resurrection, and then the actual, the, the continuing of his ministry in the book of Acts. So what Luke writes is really the, the, well, people walking with Jesus. And what we've been looking at lately is Jesus teaching. Jesus has been saying things that are, in a lot of ways, quite radical. He's been talking and preaching the gospel. So right in the beginning of Luke 8, he's been preaching the gospel, the, the good news, that the kingdom of God is here, that the poor and the oppressed are going to be free, the blind are going to see, and the kingdom of God is at hand. So there's a great crowd that's gathering around them, right? And then the question is, well, is this whole crowd really a follower of Jesus? And, and basically in, in 821, it's the summary of the whole thing, is that the people who are truly in the family of God, the true community of Jesus, are the ones that have heard the word that Jesus has spoken and do it. Now, see, this is where the, the creatures of fear kind of creep in. Because Jesus gives a description of what it looks like to respond to Jesus. He gives the, the parable of the sowers, you know, the, the good soil, or the rocky soil, the weedy soil, the path. And the, the true person in the community or family of God are the ones that are the good soil who respond to the word that's preached and produce fruit. Or they, they respond to the light and listen carefully to what Jesus is saying. They listen to him and do what it is. Now all of us, when we go through this, kind of go, hmm, I really kind of rocky or weedy or maybe I'm the path. And so what can I do to make myself good soil? And then I'm going to get it, make my, do it myself. And I'm going to make sure I see this and do it. And if you do that, you're not really listening to Jesus. Uh, and so Paul, or excuse me, Luke is writing this and trying to show 
and give certainty to people who believe the message of Jesus and, and, you know, who maybe not necessarily have the Bible or anything like that, but have believed in Jesus. And do, is, Jesus, what is Jesus really saying true? Is he really trustworthy? Is the authority that he says the things that he says actually true? Does he have that authority? And what does it actually look like to be a community of Jesus? What does it look like to follow and walk with Jesus? And so when he finishes the story of eight, in 821, you know, people who are truly my mother and my brothers are the ones that hear the word and of God and do it the question is is does he actually have the authority to say those things and what we're going to see is that Jesus today is going or Luke is going to affirm the proclamation of Jesus or Jesus's words to be true by the authority that he has today we're going to see authority over nature and authority over demonic evil. Next week we'll see his authority over disease and death. But this week over nature and demonic evil. And, and, and all, all for to give assurance to fruitful disciples. To make and, and give the foundation of fruitful disciples. So let's just jump right into the uh, 8. We're going to look at 8.22 through 25. And we'll just see the, the fear of death being evidence of a lack of faith. And maybe a lack of full knowledge of who Jesus is. So one day, he got into a boat with his disciples. And he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out. And as they sailed out, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake. And they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we're perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased. And there was calm. And he said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid. And they marveled, saying to one another, Who is this that he commands even winds and water? And they obey him. Okay, so here's his disciples. These guys have left everything, right? They've left their family, their businesses, and they're following Jesus. And one of the businesses they had was that they were fishermen. Uh, Peter, James, John, and Andrew were fishermen. And this is most likely their boat. They know the Sea of Galilee really well. So, so much so that, you know, Jesus doesn't feel too uh, afraid to go, get in the boat and go to sleep. All right? So they know how to handle the lake. Right? And, you know, even so much that Jesus goes into the, like in other Gospels, we know that he kind of goes into the stern, goes inside the boat, right? And lays down on probably the ballast uh, cushion and goes to sleep. So, you know, like when the waves are rocking, you're thinking of Jesus sleeping. Like, what is going on? And if he's really in the boat and there's no cover, he's getting all wet and he's sleeping through this. He's actually inside of the boat, I think. And, and so the wind starts to pick up. Hurricane force kind of winds kind of go. And, and the sea gets crazy. And these professional sailors are afraid of dying. The boat is filling up with water. And um, the way that Sea of Galilee works, there's mountains around and it's below sea level. So actually can, the, if just a cold front comes in, water that's quite still can become um, quite, quite rough very quickly. This just reminds me of my father-in-law. He lives on, the, on a, a bay in Lake Michigan. It's roughly the same size as the Sea of Galilee, and it could be still glass uh, on, the, uh, on the water. But if just half hour of strong winds coming from the south, and next thing you know, you have three, four-foot waves, and it's not very exciting in a small boat to be in a, in a lake where th- you know, three and four foot waves are coming and breaking onto the boat. Um, so I've experienced that once and I don't really want to experience it again. But all that to say is 
the fear of the disciples come in and they, they go, Jesus, we're going to die, we're going to die, we're going to die, we're going to die. We're perishing, we're going to die. And all they're hearing in their, the voice of fears, we're going to die, we're going to die, we're going to die. We don't know what to do, we're going to die. And Jesus calmly gets up and rebukes the wind, rebukes the waves, and everything's calm. Now, just, just for a second, just to kind of contrast the disciples and Jesus. Okay, Jesus is the Son of God, but, he, but he's, a, he's a, a fully God and fully man. And here's a fully man, God, who's uh, asleep, and he knows and trusts his Father. His Father's promised him that he is going to bring a kingdom. He's promised all the things that he's going to say, and he's, he's, the Father's telling him, I'm with you, I'm for you. He's got a task at hand. He knows this boat isn't going to sink. So he has absolutely no, no reason to be afraid because he's absolutely trusting the voice of the Father speaking to him. Whereas the disciples who have heard Jesus' words, who have left everything, who have um, given a lot of their lives to Jesus so far and knows the promises, know the kingdom is supposed to be coming and what's going on, they, all that is gone. They've completely and totally forgotten that voice of Jesus, and all they can hear is, we've got to save ourselves, we've got to save ourselves, we've got to save ourselves. And so you can see the absolute dramatic mo- notion is that this, this fear actually reveals a, a lack of faith. That's, where, that's why Jesus asked the question, where is your faith? You've believed me enough to follow me, but is it full? Is it complete? Is it mature? It's clearly not, because they don't really know who he is. They don't realize that the authority that he has in his teaching is just as ma- he has the authority over nature. So look at even the waves and the wind obey him. And it's the same question that was just asked at the end of chapter 7 when he uh, said, your sins are forgiven to a woman. They're like, who is this? Who is this? And that's a perfect question. Who is it that can command the winds and the water and they obey him? And I think in the next section, that very, an- that very question is going to be answered. And from the most unlikely of people. So let's look in 8.26. And we'll just look to 29 first here. 8.26 is 29. So they sailed to the other side. They get there. They sailed to the other country of the, of the Gerasenes, which is the opposite, uh, or which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on the land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of, of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He has kept under guard and bound him with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and, he, and be driven by the demon into the desert. Let's just stop there. I just, I, when I was reading and studying this, I kept on picturing the disciples. Uh, you know, after a ru- rough night at sea, the, the adrenaline that's going and everything else, and, you know, the fight or flight kind of instinct's been going, and they, they're still kind of shocked and afraid about Jesus stealing the waters. And they come up there, and they're probably getting all their the boat stuff, you know, all settled and everything to be able to get on the land. And as Jesus steps on the land... Here's this naked guy coming with, sh- with broken shackles on his hands and, you know, and probably legs as well. 
And, and who knows what he's saying or doing? This is just, really, you know, the fight or flight starting to really kick in. Okay, do we grab Jesus and get on the boat? Or do we get out there and kind of manhandle this guy? Or what's going on? And what is Jesus doing? He's talking to him. He's rebuking the unclean spirit that's in him. And what does the unclean spirit do? They, he, he answers the very question that the disciples just asked. Which you know, is sidebar. A lot of the commentaries that kind of make comments on this never make the connection here. It's really bizarre. It's like, oh, man, it's right there. Why not? The, 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 the demons, the unclean spirit, is saying exactly who Jesus is. He's the son of the most high God. He's God. And, and the, the thing is not that he, they're excited about the fact that Jesus is God. He says, don't torment me. We, I recognize that you have authority over me. I'm just not very excited about the fact that you have authority over me. Please, please don't torment me. Be nice, will you? And you think about what this, where this man is at, okay? Think about this guy. He's a Gentile. So in Jewish, Jewish eyes, not very good, quite lost. He's opened himself to sin so much and for so long that demons have been able to control him. So much so that he can't even live among people. He's the, he, they can't control, they can't control him. They've tried to bind him and everything else. And he's just a rabid man who's naked and, and living among the tombs, living among the graves, a place where nobody wants to be. So if you're thinking about like soils, like path, rocky, weedy, good soil, where do you think this guy's at? I'm going to guess that the most likely he's kind of like path. You know, like, you know, this, this is the, the most lost kind of person you can imagine. Someone controlled by demons because I think he's opened himself up to sin so much that they have now have control over him. So let's pick it up uh, uh, in verse 30. So Jesus, at this point, after he, they asked not to torment him, or the man asked not to torment him, uh, Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, legion, for many demons had entered him. They begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter, uh, enter these, so he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down into the steep bank, into the lake, and drowned. Now pages and pages and pages of commentaries and everything else have tried to explain this. I think if I did that, it would just be a distraction of what the actual purpose of this story is, which is... This, Jesus has the authority and the power to control a legion, thousands of demons. This man has been so lost and so sinful that thousands of demons have been able to live inside him and control him. And Jesus has the control and the power and the authority to say, go into the, the, go into the pigs. Now, they're afraid to go into the abyss the nothingness, and, and for Jewish minds, this is the sea, the water at times. And then they get into pigs and run and then go in, into the water and drown. They go into the abyss. So there's a confusion there. But all this to say is, look it, something happened. Someone, they vis- visibly noticed that spirits went from this man into pigs and then they died. Jesus has authority over incredible things. He has authority over nature. Now he has control over demonic um, evil. So, this is exactly what we see. So we see that Jesus, who is Jesus? He is the son of the most high God who has control over nature and he has control over demonic uh, spirits. He's God. 
Now we go into verses 34 to the end of the chapter, and what we're going to see is two responses to the Son of the Most High God. A response of fearful rejection or a response of fearful proclamation. Okay? So let's, let's just start in verse 34. It says, The herdsmen, the people who are herding and controlling the pigs, right, saw what had happened, and they fled and told it in the city and in the countryside. Then the people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom, um, excuse me, from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had healed them, or been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him, Jesus, to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So let's just stop there couple things to notice. So, uh, word gets around what Jesus has done, and they're not all that excited about it. They're, they're, in some ways, they're, very, they're responding very much like the demons, aren't they? They're, they see and recognize that Jesus has authority. They see and recognize a big change in the man that they couldn't control before. He's clothed, sitting at the feet of Jesus, receiving probably the teaching of Jesus, and all they can think about is, this guy killed all those pigs. Could you leave, please? We do not like what you're doing. We don't like what you're saying. Could you leave? They are fear- they're controlled and seized by the fear of the unknown. And they're saying, get out of here. Now what's interesting, just a kind of a response that I wasn't thinking of, but you think of Jesus' response to the rejection. He doesn't sit there and fight it, does he? So, okay, so you don't want me to, to be involved in this? You don't want me to be around? Okay. In the next verse, or the next, that same sentence in verse 37, so he got in the boat and returned. He left. God is a gentleman. He doesn't force himself onto people. And if you think about um, difficult circumstances that we're all going to face that could bring about fear, do we ask God, hey God, I need you. Will you help me? Help me, help me, help me. Or do we fearfully kind of try and listen to the voice and try to fix it ourselves? And God's going to be like, okay, if you want to fix it yourself, you want me to be a part of it? You're going to reject me and not be a part of it? I'm not going to force myself in that situation. And so these people reject him and they leave. There's a fearful rejection of Jesus. But then let's look at the, the other response. So Jesus got into the boat and returned. And the man from whom the demons had be- uh, gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. So we see this man who uh, is saved by Christ and he wants to follow him. He faithfully says, I want to be with you. And Jesus says, no, you, you have, you've, you've had enough for, with me. Go into the community that you're from and proclaim all the good as God has done for you. And I try, I'm assuming that from this, people are going to come to know who Jesus is. They're going to come and accept the message. So, think about this. The man has responded to Christ in such a way that he's going to produce great fruit. This man, if you look and think about the good, this, this parable of the sowers, is good soil. A man that couldn't be any more lost than he is. He didn't toil, you know, he didn't turn over his own soil and pick out the rocks and the weeds himself. He looked to Jesus with absolute helplessness, listened to him, and said, I want to be with you. And Jesus says, go and tell all that God has done for you and proclaim this to him or to the world. And I think now producing good fruit. 
So you see, there's two responses to Jesus. There's a fearful rejection, or there's a, there's a faithful proclamation. There's going to be a fruitfulness of this. And so what, I think you go back to what is Luke's ambitions in telling the story the way that he does, is to give certainty that Jesus has the authority to say what he says, and also to give the basis for disciples to be faithful and fruitful. And it's exactly what this demonized man becomes. He becomes healed and fruitful. But then, so what does this have to do with us? I think this goes back to kind of the fear and faith kind of stuff. Um, and when I'm thinking about this, I think, uh, I think I've used this uh, picture before, but as an American football player in high school, we played this huge game, and it was against rivals, uh, high schools, and we uh, hadn't, they hadn't played in a really long time. And so it was a big deal, and both teams were really good that year. And there was like 10,000 people at this high school game. You know, like it's kind of like, the Chippenham football game. You know, I can imagine 10,000 people there. It's kind of ridiculous. It's more like 100 people there. But we had 10,000 people this game, and it's rabid. You could not hear any. I was in the locker room hundreds of yards away, and you could hear the noise out there so loud. So I'm on the field, and uh, you could hear the static, the noise, the ringing ears so loud. But I, my, my coach was 20 yards away on the sideline, and I could hear his voice clear as day, just talking to me like this. And it's because I'd spent so much time listening to his instructions and everything else, I could hear his voice over everything else. And you think of all the circumstances that you might face as a person where fear is going to come. You know, uh, kids, you know, the fear of, where did my kid go? Where did my kid go? You never have a small kid and not where they went. There's instant panic. They're gone. I'm never going to see them again, everything else. I think, okay, thank you, God. You're with me. Thank you, God. You're my God. Am I going to be calm and, and, and trust Jesus in, in the, some of the more difficult situations? Or even, um, you know, parenting, marriage, security, jobs. You know, like, you know, for, for us, Aaron and I, getting noticed that uh, the government's saying you have to pick up and leave. You have 60 days or until the January 31st, we have to be out. And we don't know where we're going to go. We don't know when we're going to go. We just know that we're supposed to go. And, you know, baby's coming and everything else. There's a lot of opportunities for fear. There's a lot of opportunities to kind of try to make things happen and be my own savior. But the, that's the voice of fear, trying to be our own savior. The, the voice of faith is, God, you're God. You're my savior. You're my rescuer. I can't do anything. I'm absolutely helpless. Can you show me who you are? Can you show me your salvation? Can you show me that you're good and that you're with me and that you're in control? So, so wherever you're at, the question is, what is getting in the way of you hearing the voice of God that says, I'm with you, I love you, and I got this? Is it family? Is it job? Is it security? Is it just the chaos of the world that we're talking about? You know, and remember on Sunday, I just got done watching like a, a doc, I went to Auschwitz uh, in Poland in May, and then I saw uh, that there was a documentary on that, and I wanted to see more about the Auschwitz, and, you, and the people were saying, well, People forgot me, and God, or forgot the camp, and God forgot the camp. It's like, well, and God did not forget that camp. You don't want, you, you, you out of fear and, and, and trying to survive and be your own God, forgot that God was in the, even in the midst of that. There, I wasn't even planning to say this, but there's a, a great theologian in the 20th century who died in the concentration camps, Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And as he was getting ready to, uh, there's a story of him saying, you know, someone asking him as a kid was being hung and killed in a, in a camp. The guy looked over to the Dietrich Bonhoeffer as a Christian, and he says, so where's God in this? And Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, God's right there with that boy. 
He's there. He knows the situation. He's with them. See, when we, we, when we have, hear the voice of faith, we trust that God is there with us and for us and in control. We can say, thank you, God, even in the, the most difficult of circumstances. So, um, lastly, I wanted to think of this, is that I think Dietrich Bonhoeffer could say what he said because he was free in Christ. Galatians 5.1 says that for freedom's sake, Christ has set you free. He set you free not only from sin and the law, but he set us free from the fear of trying to be our own savior. The fear of punishment, but the, just fear. Fear controlling us. The fear of death. Every one of us in this room at some point will die. Promise. It's a one-to-one ratio. Everyone has died. And the question is, we can't keep and can't hold on to life. So at the moment that we will get to join Jesus if we believe him, are we going to scratch and claw out of fear to keep something that we cannot keep? Or are we going to hear the voice of faith, the voice of God speaking to our hearts, saying, I'm with you, I love you, I'm for you, and by the way, I've defeated death. Come join me. See, so this is the affirmation of Jesus' proclamation. He's got the power He's got the control, but the most importantly, he's with you, he's for you, and he loves you. Let's pray. Uh, Father God, it's so hard to uh, feel like we can speak and declare uh, that you are a God that's um, good and and, in control and loving. It just feels so inadequate to talk about you because you've you've revealed yourself so well in Christ. The God that came to be among us, that came to uh, give freedom uh, to the, the oppressed, to care for the broken, the needy, the orphan, the widow. And there's so many things in our lives that we um, feel like we can control uh, the, the, to protect ourselves from inadequacy or feeling that we're not good enough and all those kinds of things. Uh, trying to make ourselves have the right relationships and singleness and marriage and everything else. But oh Lord, I just pray that you would help us not to try to fix things, not to make ourselves right, not to get in and make ourselves good soil, but to say, God, I need you. I don't know what else to do but say, I need you. I have my eyes on you, and we're looking to you to save and protect us. Lord, you are our Savior. You are our keeper. And thank you, Lord, that you're our friend, and you like to be with us. And so I just pray that you would do what you would like with this in each of our hearts, and that we would, uh, each of us would love you, trust you, and in the moments of fear and anxiety, that we would not say, God, we're going to die, we're going to die, we're going to die, but we can say, thank you, thank you, thank you because you're you. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.